Picking up at verse 15 from Matthew 18, hear the word of God. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or three, two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would open up our eyes and tune our hearts into this teaching that our Savior has commended to us, that we take heed to it and fulfill it. Remind us that the church is Christ, and it is on His terms that we enter into this glorious body of light. While there is still much residual darkness and sin remaining in us, which clouds our thinking, distorts our ways, We pray that you would remove those clouds and the fog from our heart this day. And may we see the glory of Christ and the glory of His church that He is making her to be. In washing her in the water of the Word to remove every spot and blemish that He might present to Himself a glorious bride. And we pray that we would love the truth, love what you love and hate what you hate. And pray that you would tune our hearts in to receive those things that the Spirit would give us this hour. So we ask that the preaching would be in the power of the Spirit and not in the flesh of man. We pray that you'd fall fresh upon us and pray that you would square us up with the truth. And we pray that you'd bless this church body and bless your church universal this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We are in a section of Scripture that instructs God's people of one of those necessary, albeit one of those unpleasant ways, to maintain the integrity of covenant life. It's the integrity of God's covenant life with His people and His people as they live this out here upon the earth. And this whole section has been dealing with conflict resolution and maintaining holiness in the church. And as we've noted before, this is not a piece of wisdom or a suggestion. This is the command of God. We need to remember that this is Christ's church. Heritage is Christ's church. It's not ours. It's not to do with it what we wish or not to govern it how we want and not to uh, just to, to do with it how we, um, how we please But as we conform ourselves into our lives and to what God has expected of us, we will find the great joy, that which sometimes our heart seeks, uh, that we think that needs to be different, but that which will come about as we obey Him in whatsoever He commands us. And when we sin, we create a wedge in the body of Christ, in our own relationship with Him, 
our relationship with our loved ones. And when that sin has created a relationship in the wedge between other people, the Bible says here, now if you've got a wedge between you and a relationship with another, go to that person and confront the person and get the matter settled between you two. And just keep it there between you two alone. But if a brother sees another brother sinning, and does not repent of that sin, he also is to go to that brother meekly and confront him in terms of his sin, seeking his repentance. Now if that brother doesn't listen to you in either of those two situations, then he's to take one or two more with him, and they are to uh, confront him and encourage him and exhort him. But if he doesn't listen to them, then the matter gets taken before the entire church, and at that point, we enter into more of a formal stage of what we often talk of as church discipline. Now, at the stage of church discipline, the unrepentant sinner can be disciplined if he or she does not repent. The fullest extent of which is excommunication, though there are many variations of discipline along the way. And folks, we need to understand the church ought to be about this as much as a father needs to spare not the rod of his children. If he does that, he's going to spoil the child if he does not spank the child. And if we don't practice church discipline, even in a fatherly and loving way, it's going to spoil the church. As we've been looking in the last several weeks of the sins that actually we have four or even more accounts of categories where we've seen discipline of the church in this formal matter. And we've looked at a couple of passages to get some of those kind of categories of which people are and have been disciplined out of the church. We've looked at 1 Corinthians 5 as just one example when we see that one of those categories for which sins of people are excommunicated out of the church are for those gross behavioral sins which include, and the passage gave us there, immorality or fornication. And it even includes among that covetousness and idolatry and extortion. And those were just examples of the kind of gross behavioral sins for which some can be excommunicated. A second category that we looked at a couple of weeks ago were serious doctrinal errors. Serious doctrinal errors can also be the kind of sin that people can get excommunicated out of the church. And those errors often lead to people's shipwreck of their own faith and also the faith of others who end up believing those matters. But we also have seen that doctrinal errors creates divisions in the church. Last Lord's Day, we looked at this other aspect, and that is really not of the gross immoral or behavioral sin, nor is it of a, a gross doctrinal error, but it really is unaddressed disorderly character issues. And it's the passage we looked at was in Second Thessalonians, where if a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. And we are to note that man and mark that man, and if he doesn't heed these things to do not have company with that person, 
Yet treat him as a brother and not as an enemy, at least in the first stages of this disorderly conduct. But this morning I want us to consider a final category as we close this section of this scripture, and it's one that I wanted to dedicate an entire message to, and that is divisiveness by factious people. And that's the subject I would like for us to consider this morning. Divisiveness by factious people. Now, let me qualify this right up front and say that I'm not talking about any particular situation here or any person here. Right now, we're not in a place where there's people pressing issues to the place of divisiveness for which they need discipline. That's not at all what's on the forefront We're simply going through four passages, but this last category is an important one for us to consider because particularly in the Church of America, we are very divisive in exactly this kind of category. Sometimes by the nature of our own spirit that has been fostered in the culture of the world in which we live. So I'm going to take the passage of Scripture and we'll spend there in Titus chapter 2 So if you want to take your Bibles, and we're going to look at that passage here in Titus chapter 2. As Paul is writing to Paul, I'm sorry, to Timothy and Titus in this section of what we call the pastoral epistles, Titus is a letter that the apostle is writing to a pastor to instruct him regarding the government of the church and how he is to pastor there. And so in Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 9, hear now the word. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. The things mentioned here in this passage were very important to some people, particularly the Jewish Christians. These were not light things, these which Paul says were foolish disputes, genealogies, strivings about the law. These were not light things. These were theological issues that were important to some people in the church. And I think it's important that we recognize and not even marginalize the fact that these things were important to some people in the church from their perspective. There are many things today that Christians can feel very strongly about even to the extent of being divisive about them. But there is a deception that often accompanies this kind of thing. And it happens, and I've seen it happen a number of times over the 25 years that I've been pastoring the church. The nature of an issue of which one feels strongly about, where a Christian in the church It's a primary matter mixed up with a secondary matter. 
And the secondary matter to him becomes a primary at the expense of the things which God calls the primary. He flip-flops the two, but from his own perspective, thinks that they are the absolute essential primaries and they're unyielding. Jesus confronted the Pharisees in a passage that we will soon come to in Matthew 23 when he is breathing out some woes to the Pharisees. He says in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you pay the tithe of the mint and anise and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These, the previous things, you ought to have kept done without leaving the others undone. Or these weightier matters you should have done without leaving the secondary matters undone. Yeah, both are important, but there is weightier matters of some over others. Jesus was sharing here and showing that not all things in our Christian life are equal. There are some weightier, more primary matters, and there are some that are lesser or secondary matters. We should have a heart to keep them all. But he's giving out breathings of woe to the scribes and Pharisees for pressing the wrong things. And there's an age-old problem of focusing and pressing the lesser matters while neglecting the primary ones. And I think we've all been guilty of that at some point or another. The lesser matters tends to be oftentimes matters of duty. They can be seen as things I have to do to perform or even perhaps maybe even part of my Christian responsibilities. Christians sometimes can have a tendency to, to press these duty aspects. Said another way, and coupling this in with our Wednesday night Bible study, it can be the tendency of some, and perhaps all of us at one point or another, to press the legal aspects of the covenant relationship at the expense of the familial. The primary matters, the weightier matters of which Jesus is addressing with the Pharisees on this occasion are relational and character in their components of the kingdom. Justice, mercy, and faith. Justice, making things that are wrong here right. Mercy, having compassion even with pity upon others. And not being exacting upon them for every little infraction. And faith, trusting Christ to follow Him and to emulate His life of piety and love. These are weighty matters. Paul would address something similar as he's writing the church of Rome in the 14th chapter in verse 17 when he addresses some of those secondary matters that were bringing division among the church body when he says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, when the things that we personally 
feel strongly about are pressed into the body of Christ to the extent that we're willing to be divisive about it, we have completely turned upside down the law of God. In other words, there are those who will argue and strive about things of the law, things that might be right, things that might be good, but to the extent that they are willing to be divisive about it, and when they do, they turn the heart and the spirit of the law all the way back around upside down. They have forgotten the weightier the matters while they're trying to nitpick on the lesser matters. And in the process of doing that, the entire spirit of the law gets turned around. The heart of the law is love for God and love for your neighbor. And when one uses the law in the wrong spirit to divide the body of Christ, he's considered a divisive person. Because unity in the body is a primary thing. It is a weighty matter of the law. In fact, of what we read in John, 7, or John 17 of Christ's high priestly prayer, this is what Christ was praying for. And what Christ prays for is that we might be one. As He and His Father are one. We have an obligation to live according to what He prayed. This is a weighty matter. And many Christians have taken a secondary issue, important as it may be, and from their perspective, really important, but pressed it to the point within the body that it becomes divisive. Such a person, Paul says in Titus 3, is to be given a warning and a second warning. And if he continues, he is to be rejected. Excommunicated. A divisive person, let's say by character, by nature, can have such a character flaw he doesn't admit that he's a divisive person. He can't even see it to the point of addressing it. Or he can have a spirit about him that is simply contentious. And usually that's filled with some pride, because pride is what blinds us from ourselves. And it has a self-righteous aspect to it, which tends to self-justify. And that's why people like this are very close to correction and hearing people speak into their lives. Contentious people have a particular confrontational element in them. They don't mind being confrontational to a certain degree. They're not afraid of pressing their points in which they feel strongly, but they do that even past the point that it is healthy in the relationship of those with whom they, they interact. Or a contentious person can work very subversively, creating factions in the church by winning approval or gaining favor or gaining sympathies from people on a particular matter over and against other people in the church. 
In fact, a characteristic gossiper is of this category. The word used in this passage, but avoid foolish disputes and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable. Reject a divisive person who will press these things. The word here of a divisive man who is to be rejected is the concept of heresy. The word divisive here is the word heretikos from which we get the word heretic. To us, heresy has kind of narrowed into a category of simply very false teaching. But the Greek word here used is one who is divisive. And of course, false teaching produces divisiveness. But that's only one cause of it. Heresy is a broader concept than merely spreading false doctrine in the church. It has to do with divisiveness in the church. It includes a divisive person, a factious person, one who sows discord among the brethren. That's a heretic. Whether he's doing it through bad doctrine or whether he's doing it through a cantankerous spirit. Division in the church is often some matter of internal debate over some issue that has to do with the Christian life. And you have some individuals who are going to press points which they deem very important to them and to the extent that they're willing to divide the church over those very points. That's the nature of heresy. Now there have been occasions, and of course I qualify, there have been debates and even division in the church over a particular fundamental of the faith. And there have been good men who have practically stood alone in their church and even entire denominations who have stood for the truth and who were excommunicated. One of those men that some of you may even know the name of John Gresham Machen back in the 20s was practically standing alone for the fundamentals of the faith in the old line Presbyterian church. But this passage is talking about something completely different. This is a very important passage to us because what seems to be indicated here is a situation where there are divisive and factious people, but the issue really is not a fundamental of the Christian faith. Like genealogies. I am of the house of Levi. I am of the house of David. Or foolish controversies or contentions about the law of God that does not bring unity, but it brings divisiveness. Does not show love for God and neighbor, but does exactly the opposite. Now the examples of which he's giving here does not rise to the level 
of denying the resurrection or of that kind of gross false teaching like we've covered in the previous example of our second category. No, in this case, it's someone pressing a particular point or belief that is not fundamental to the faith, but pressing that point comes to the level of being factious within the body. And unity in the body of Christ, in Christ's church, everywhere is taught in the New Testament as absolutely essential. This is one of the essential things for which we are to fight for, die for, give our lives for, and pray for. The peace of Israel. May they prosper who love you, as the psalmist would say. Because Christ not only wants, but He has prayed that His bride be one. To the extent that when His bride is divided, and they come to His table of communion, and they partake of it in hypocrisy, He will even bring judgment upon them if the church themselves will not judge the matter. And so he wants the bride to be one. He wants heritage to be unified. He wants us to live at peace and to genuinely love each other. But to the extent that he even wants us as a local church to be in fellowship with other local churches in town and encouraging one another. He wants all of his church to be one in Him. And this issue of someone within His church, His body, being divisive goes right to the heart, goes right to the juggler of the church when it divides the Lord's people. And one of the ways to avoid controversy like that is simply to agree to disagree. There's lots of things of which we can agree to disagree. And a body of believers is at liberty to do that to a certain degree because not all teachings are equal in weight. There are weightier matters for which we need to in agreement, there are lesser matters which we hope we can be in some level of agreement. But what it's going to mean for us, as well as it does for every church and even denominations, is there's going to be some clear prioritizing that must go on in terms of what those weightier matters are and what those lesser matters are. But the practical effect of this agreeing to disagree is that you begin to erode and diminish the importance of that doctrine over which you agree to disagree. Let me give you an example. I know of a particular church and a particular denomination. In the particular denomination, it's a Presbyterian denomination. They have an openness on their practice of baptism so that members, as well as officers alike, can, pay to, can be either a, 
Paedo-Baptist or a Credo-Baptist on the issue of baptism. A particular church that I know of in this denomination, which is very prominent in that denomination, I had consulted some of the pastors at one point, and they had um, elders on their session, the chief pastor, if they use that term, the minister, one of the teaching elders, was a credo Baptist. In other words, he was a Baptist pertaining to baptism, while all of the others were pedo baptism. This was a time in which our whole church and our own convictions were swaying from baptism to pedo baptism or credo to pedo, Baptist to Presbyterian. So we were conferring with them and asking counsel from them. I said, well, how does that work? I can understand it if it's at the membership level, but at the, the leadership level, how do you have unity and then press the importance of this into the lives of God's people? And he said, that's the problem. It doesn't, and it isn't that important. So by default, we're implying that that doctrine isn't all that important if we can simply agree and disagree, or agree to disagree over it. And that's the problem with that. Both sides of that argument would lament that it's not all that important, or that's the practical outworking of it. Because they both believed it was very important for them personally. Now what will happen is this. I agree to disagree, but I think this is really important. And I'm going to teach that it's really important. And that's inevitably going to drive and become a wedge in the body of Christ. And as soon as someone starts to make it at the level of great importance, we're going to lose our agreement. Are you tracking with that? Does that make sense? No? Okay, let me start back over. If y'all would turn to Matthew 8. (laughs) What I'm saying here is one of the things that we will inevitably happen when we agree to disagree on an issue to stay in charity and unity. It will have a diminishing result that it's not going to rise to the level of that kind of importance. You're going to think it's important. I'm going to think it's important. But when we then say, okay, we're going to just agree to disagree, now all of a sudden it's going to result in not being quite so important anymore. What is important, however, is the unity of God's church in the midst of that. We should always keep that right along with what I'm claiming to be really important and what you claim to be really important Okay. Now this is where we have to quickly and always keep at the forefront the unity of the body as being an important and essential principle. That's going to be true in your own family. There's going to be things over which you and your spouse disagree, and you can agree to disagree, 
But you're always going to have to press the weightier matters of the love for God and love for each other in order to have the important things not undone while you're pressing the lesser matters. We don't want to be hypocritical in this. So we have to ask ourselves, is the matter over which we're struggling a matter of importance so much so that I'm willing to divide the body of Christ over it? And there are some matters so fundamental to the faith that do fall into that category. But assuming that we're not dealing with those categories or the fundamental of the faith, we need to consider how to maintain unity in the body and not being a divisive person and pressing a certain aspect that is important to me personally. Because unity in the body should also be equally important to me personally. And an issue over which we'll struggle for. And we all have, every one of us, our personal and individual points that we feel strongly about. And if we're not careful, we can press that point to the division of the body. I would say even pastors have to be careful with this. One way that a church is to keep the unity of the faith is to clearly define what those positions are. In other words, we say that this church is Presbyterian. And as a result of that, we're claiming a particular position on baptism is such and such. Just like we baptize infants this morning because we feel that is important. Now we would not say that someone who doesn't agree with our position isn't Christian. That's not what we're saying. But we are not going to agree that just any view here is going to be acceptable. Because as soon as we do that, we're saying that's not at the level of the importance for this congregation to pursue. And we do feel that this is important, so we make a church position on that in order to maintain unity. But to keep the matter important also in the lives of all of our people here. So we want to hold this particular position by just way of example as important. And we want to define our position in the church so that baptism is administered not only to those who are new converts who have not been baptized, but to our infants as well. And so when a church does this, it's going to help keep the unity of the church and enable it to underscore what we think is important. You know, a church doesn't have to sacrifice the importance of doctrines themselves. But we're going to have to consider as members of the church in which we're members of, in which we have come together to see the importance of these things, that we're going to have to agree on the position of the church 
and not be contrary to bring division over those very things of which the church agrees upon. Now, I'm actually being very broad here. For instance, a person with a baptistic conviction that does not believe that we should be baptizing our infants can certainly join our church and they can maintain their position in our church body. They can do that. But they cannot go around promoting their position, attempting people to win people over to their position over and against the not only the, the elders' position in what we're teaching, but over against what we have all agreed are important for the life of this church. But they're welcome to be full-fledged members here. Because we have defined that as a matter of importance, we want to maintain that in the lives of the membership and the people here, so we ask people not to teach against these accepted positions. Does that make sense? You know, all churches are going to do this to some degree or another. This is the whole purpose of why we are what's called a confessional church. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a, is a broad and detailed statement of doctrine, of a creed that was put together in the 17th century in order to bring unity to the church over against persecutions that was coming against it. And what we do is when we adopt this historic creed, we're saying and we're making a statement, we believe what's in here is important. This rises to the level of which we want to unify around. And we've tried to be clear on some of those exceptions, like Pado communion and some of the clarity, like exclusive psalmody, so that we all are on board with the things that we understand are important, and so we're all in unity about these things. Confessional churches subscribe to a confession for the sake of unity, not for the sake of disunity. We are not saying that those who disagree with our confession are heretics. That's not what we're saying. But rather we are saying to our own members, these things are important things to rally around and not create division in the body against them. Are you tracking? Thank you beyond which then become secondary matters over which we will not divide. It's, it's, it's a, a propensity for us to, to take these secondary matters of perhaps maybe some of the characteristics of our congregation or some of the things that we think are really important, and then we can make matters divisive whether it be in our own body or with another body of Christ. And we're going to have to be very careful not to be heretics. Now this is the reason why most churches have a constitution that even goes beyond the fundamentals of the faith. It goes beyond the fundamentals of the faith to clarify what they're going to unify around, not to divide the body of Christ, but to unify the people, to maintain the unity, to keep divisions out of that body. The point is not to be a wedge, but to do exactly the opposite, to keep the wedges out. And when people join that church and subscribe to it, it helps prevent factions within that body. That's why it's important that elders maintain the unity 
by identifying and clarifying on the teachings that can be controversial. This is part of how and even why elders must govern within the church. They must teach sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is that which unifies. Bad doctrine is that which divides. Now you may disagree with some of the positions that a particular church takes. And that can be acceptable to a certain degree. But as soon as someone begins to undermine the authority of the church or begin to go contrary to the position of the church in which they joined, that's becoming divisive. That's what Paul is speaking of here. Now what if you had someone who kept pressing a point, pressing a point, pressing a point, pressing a point? That becomes divisive. Paul says you're going to have to warn him once. You'll probably have to warn him a second time. Don't warn him a third time. Because if he's not listening by then, you're going to have to reject that person. That's how important the unity of the body is to Christ. Now what if someone feels very strongly about a point that goes against the positions or the leadership of the church? feel very strongly about this. That person should either, one, settle his spirit on the matter, not to speak out against the leadership, or two, find another assembly more in line with his beliefs and should not divide a church body over those issues. By trying to make an issue in a church over it, and call into question the government, that's divisive. That's heretical in the broad sense of the word. And if you ever come to the point where you say, I can no longer subscribe to that. Whatever that is. And it's important enough for me, so that the church deems this point as a matter of great importance, you have two options. You can say, I don't want to hurt this body, so I'm going to not elevate this particular, even though I feel very strongly about it, to a matter that I'm going to try to change the church constitution over it. I'm not going to press it to the place where it becomes divisive. Because you understand that the unity of the body is just as important as the particular issue or matter that you are struggling with. And you're going to have to come to the place to see that it is true. Or the second thing, the matter is so important for the church itself to take a position that supports my own that I must find another church that feels strongly about it that makes it a matter of importance like baptism i'm a baptist and i believe so strongly that you should not be baptizing your infants and i'm going to make such a strong point about this that i cannot see that this is a is a matter that and if and this church sees it as important therefore i've got to go find a baptist church I'm not going to raise it to the level of bringing division in this body. Because they see it as important in the opposite direction. 
You know, those cases, when it comes to at that level, are usually denominational. People have fought over these things in the past to the level where denominations have been made. And I think that's helpful for us because they are not, if they are not, in your own personal life, if, if you can't find another church or another denomination that's pressing the point like you're pressing, the point is probably not as big as you think it is, and the problem is maybe you, and not the church and not the denomination. Again, we're not talking about fundamentals of the faith. The funny thing is, I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you, this is the funny thing. It's funny, sad thing. Funny thing is that many people leave a church over an issue, and it's often a single issue. Over a single issue. While when they are confronted with it, they will come up with some other things. But really, people will leave over a single issue. Oftentimes, not a fundamental of the faith. And the church that they end up settling in, oftentimes the very next church they settle in, takes the position of the church that they left. I don't know if you understand what I'm talking about, so let me give you an example from personal history. We were going through the study of baptism in our church. We took about a year and a half to go through that. We were a Baptist church, and both of the elders became paedo-Baptist as we were looking through this whole process. And there were several families. It was not a church split, thankfully, but there were several families over the course of 18 months that left our church over this one issue of baptism, that he could not be in a church that baptized infants. And I believe five families left, only one of which ends up in a Baptist church. All the other four went to a Presbyterian church that baptized babies. You say, how can that be? It is how it is. That is more common than it is the exception. Because a person like this thinks in such a way that it becomes the one issue, and then the one issue when he leaves is really not the issue. The issue was with the person, not the church. So he finds a new home, oftentimes that is exactly the same position over which he claimed to have left over. This is common. This is what I call more characteristic than it is exceptional. Have you ever seen that? I'm sharing this to share with you that we have to check our own spirits on those single things that we see is very important. And you're going to have more than one single thing, but the thing is that needs to be above it all is the unity of the body of Christ in Him, in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To the glory of God the Father, embracing all those things that whatsoever He taught us to teach and to command and to obey, one of which is, Father, I pray that they would be one as we are one. So we need to check ourselves and our own hearts and our spirits when controversial matters come up. 
And if anyone keeps pressing an issue and pressing an issue and pressing issue to get others to agree with their position over and against the leadership or the, the, the stated position of the church, I think we can change the direction. I think we can change the Constitution. That's factious. That will divide a body. That is an excommunicable offense if it continues. That's serious. And Paul is telling Titus here, in the closing portion of his epistle, to mark those kinds of people, they will destroy the church. Or the health or the well-being of the church. There are lots and lots of issues throughout the history of the church, and many of those issues people have pushed to become divisive. And every generation is going to deal with particular issues, even multiple issues that will pose threats to the gospel life of the church. Credo-baptism and pedo-baptism has been a historic one for the last 400 years. Credo-communion and pedo-communion is some ways more recent, but still can be divisive. And is. Some people will call you the heretic if you believe in one and not the other. Forms of liturgy or being a high liturgical church or not are divisive when people press those things. Topics of women's ministry or children's ministry or age segregation ministries, food and diet issues. Do you know how divisive food and diet issues are and health issues in the church of Jesus Christ today? Remedies, this kind of diet, that kind of diet. The way we handle our own personal health issues should not be a problem within the broader context. And I'm not to demean anybody's health and struggles here but it cannot become divisive within the body. We should be unified even with all of our infirmities. Differences of church ministry issues, programs or not, educational issues, how I'm going to educate my children or not. Worship, music issues. Oh, there's a big one right there. And guess what? That is a historic issue. It goes all the way back to the Anti-Nicene Fathers. Augustine wrote a lot on church music. What was allowed? What was not allowed? The devil's tritone, not allowed. Certain modes. The seventh chord. Ah! Stirs up. Music in the church has always been an issue. People leave over that. People leave over drums. Come on. Electric guitars. Yeah, we have our preferences, but don't leave a church over that issue. Headship and patriarchal issues. Variations out there among feminist issues. I'm speaking very broadly in the church, not just here. Some of which will apply here, of course. Church polity issues. Episcopalian, Presbyterian, local, congregational, elder, uh, pastor of the Pope, or whatever you have. 
See, all these things, I'm not saying they're not important. Government, civil magistrate concerning even including some conspiracy theories or party politics. Music and entertainment choices within the culture of that particular church body. Alcohol, drinking, smoking, or certain liberties that are more controversial or controversial issues that may not be certain liberties that certain people think they are. And matters of church discipline. Specific applications of Sabbath keeping or Sabbath keeping at all. All of these will seem very important in the lives of Christian people. And any of these can be divisive issues depending on how one handles them within the church. But to the extent that one becomes divisive within the church body, they can be excommunicable. For these quite lesser matters. It's not the lesser matter of which they're being excommunicated for. It's the matter of pressing them into the place where it divides the body of Christ. Division in the body of Christ is the abomination in the eyes of God. And so we are to give a first admonition, a second admonition against this kind of divisiveness. If a person does not comply, he is to be excommunicated out of the church. So in sum, as we've discussed, the excommunicable offenses include, number one, those gross behavioral sins. Number two, those gross doctrinal errors. Number three, this kind of unchecked, disorderly behavior that is characteristic that can be a problem within the church. And number four that we covered here is divisiveness and living in this disorderly manner. And so as we conclude this section in Matthew 18, I want us to be reminded once again, whose is the church? It's Christ's. It's not ours. It's Christ's. It's not mine. It's not the sessions. It's not the consistories. It's not yours personally. It's Christ's. And by virtue that He is Lord and its Creator, and by virtue that it is the body for which He Himself died and, and saved and propitiated her sins, His objective for His church is to cleanse her entirely, to beautify her as a beautiful bride without spot or blemish or any such thing, to present to Himself this beautiful bride. That's His objective. And the directions here in Matthew 18 is to keep us on track for His objective. He prayed for it. He labors for it. And now we need to conform to what He prays and labors for. And no person in this church has the authority to deviate from Christ on the points that He gives us in Matthew 18. I don't have that authority. Keith doesn't have that authority. The deacons do not have that authority. And you personally and individually do not have that authority to deviate from what Christ has given us in Matthew 18. And I say that because almost every case of church discipline, when it gets to the level of excommunication, 
most of those cases will have other people leaving the churches or that church because a person was disciplined. And I want you to know that now. And I hope that doesn't happen here. I hope we can be an exceptional church in that way. But this is common. Satan will take a person who is sitting and he will make them the wedge in a church body. Because you will have people who may even be relatives or a work associate, associate and who doesn't seem like the sin is that big of a deal. And so he will side with the sinner and not the church, and that becomes a wedge in that assembly. In some cases, people leave church over disciplined matters of the grossest immorality because the person who is committing the grossest immorality happened to be the music director all the years of that church, and we loved him. And numbers of people knew about it and the church discipline split that church because her members do not accept what Christ is here telling us. And we have to remember this is Christ's church and the church needs to stay lock in step with our Lord for the things that we bind and loose is just catching up to heaven with what He has already decreed. And so may Christ be glorified here in this church and the church abroad as His bride is submissive to His headship as He leads us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the instruction as difficult as it is in our flesh to carry out. And sometimes our flesh wars against it. We give You thanks for this instruction and may now, by Your grace and with Your Spirit, may we walk worthy of the Lord, pleasing You in every good work, and fulfilling these things so that we are not delinquent, and so that Your church is pure, and so our genuine heart is loving repentance in the lives of each other, and loving the truth. And so we pray that You would bless this congregation. Lord, it is our desire that we would not ever see excommunication here. So we pray, if it be your will, that that would be the case. But we know that there will be tares among the wheat. You have said it to be so. And we pray that we would be discerning, that we would yet not lose our first love in the process of carrying out these important things of your church. May we love each other. May we love our God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.